0: you
1: Dr. Barry Iruke. I'm actually here. Um, just, you know, happy to be here. I'm um, back from vacation, so feel am feeling refreshed. Uh, took a few weeks off. Uh, had to see family actually in Euroland, specifically Sweden, which actually was a pretty cool trip. Uh, not going to lie, I had a great time. and I saw some of my nephews, saw uh, my people, so it was great. So um, ultimately, um, I'm going to actually do a special uh, show talking about some of the things I noticed that was kind of unique about Sweden as a country, very different system from the United States of America, and uh, as far as healthcare, anyway. And it was interesting, kind of noticing some of those differences, and we'll highlight those in a future show. Anyway, so you know, we're back on it, just talking about all the typical things we like to mention when it comes to health and wellness. You know, of course, you know, you know, health and wellness is now it seems like nightly news. It seems like like what the hell? I'm like I'm reading the, the different uh, blogs and just kind of keeping up with the health and wellness news, and it's like so much politics. It's like what in the world? Um, You know, usually used to be kind of considered a weirdo if you're overly worried about nutrition. But clearly we realize with COVID and, uh, you know, all these different things going on, every new illness is like, you know, know, evening news now. And we'll talk about how that may be affecting some of this monkeypox coverage we're seeing. Um, But ultimately, it is an interesting time, and uh, Health and Wellness is going to be in the center of that. So we realize that, you know, when you're out here, all these bugs in the wild, you can't see different dangers here and there from things you can see, like a mad person coming to a shopping mall, start shooting, you know, you know, things like that, you know, people don't understand. That's all part of health and wellness, understanding how to stay alive at this point. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's not really funny, but unfortunately, especially here in America, um, some of those things have been a reality. Like, you have to understand survival is real. Um, and, uh, you know, even some international listeners, actually, it was funny. I was talking to some of my uh, listeners out in Sweden, actually. Uh, not that I have a whole lot of listeners out there, but there were some people who told me that they were fans of the show and that we chatted for a bit. And uh, it's funny, a lot of the same issues as far as health from COVID, of course, they had a big COVID issue out in Europe. So a lot of people had strong opinions regarding um, how it was handled. And, you know, it was just, you really come to realize that this kind of, you know, focus that we're now seeing that's focused on you know, the new viruses, the new health stories is really shaping the dialogue around the globe. And it's something that, you know, it's um, really becomes very apparent, especially when you start seeing people in different areas and seeing what they're bringing up and their concerns. You realize they kind of align uh, a lot with ours. So ultimately, it's something that I think, you know, us knowing these this information is going to help us, you know, be able to make better decisions that will, I think, allow us to I think be in sync with some of the other operations going elsewhere. And I think a lot of good things going on in the health and wellness space that we could also learn to appreciate. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So one thing about, um, you know, the the news that's been really kind of all over the headlines has been monkeypox. I'm sure you guys have seen the monkeypox thing. It's been really big in the media. Um, But actually, oh, producers, stop me. Before we go into the news, real quick, you got to do the commercials real brief. Um, guys, you want to reach out? Feel free. Email me at birookmd at gmail.com. Also, you can check out our other email at drbarryhealth at gmail.com. Um, Instagram, follow us at drberrymd. That's D-R-B-R-Y-M-D um, on Instagram. And of course, um, Facebook. Um, that was actually taken down by Facebook. So the Facebook page has been kind of structured. We're going to try to make a new one. But ultimately, um, Instagram is going to be probably the best option, especially to get the updates on the shows and everything else. So, do that, and uh, we'll try to um, you know go forward. We have the like I said big um, network being built out for the YouTube, so stay posted for that. And uh, last but not least, guys, expect some interviews coming up real soon. We have a couple dope interviews lined up. We're going to also do some interesting stories and features. So, all right, back to the news. So, the recent topic that's really been all over the headlines has been. Monkeypox. Now, monkeypox has been one of those illnesses that has been around for a while. We've talked about it already on the show regarding the monkeypox um, concerns that many countries have had and how the outbreak started around, you know, it's been endemic and that's meaning that it has been within the population for a while in Western Africa. Um, For many years, I mean, since the 70s, I think I've seen reports of it being described. Um, Never really considered a deadly ailment. People tend to get, you know, symptomatic issues like this characteristic rash, which I'm sure you've seen on different posts now um, that has been known with the monkeypox. It kind of covers the body. It's more of a kind of unsightly physical thing, so people kind of get freaked out. And, you know, rightly so. It's not the most pleasant-appearing rash. But overall, it is harmless. The rash will typically go away after some weeks um can leave scarring, can leave some issues, but ultimately it's fairly um, well-tolerated um, death rate. Um, for the uh, overall syndrome, is not very high either, uh, about 2% or so, and that's usually in sicker, more el- people who have comorbidities, who are have some chronic ailments that, you know, regard- makes their immune system weaker. So definitely not without risk, but, you know, something that um, has been around and people feel that with just good supportive care, fluids, you know, fever, treatment, things like that, most people do come out of it okay. That being said, um, because it is something that's fairly not really associated to be um, known to be seen typically in Europe and uh, and in the Americas, it's kind of brought in a new concern because it's believed that the virus is now spreading in different areas, and it's believed that it's particularly spreading via contact. It's believed also this is occurring primarily in groups that are considered gay and bisexual males um essentially men who have sex with men um ultimately um sorry guys a bit of a background noise but i think we're in the clear now all right so again monkeypox is definitely doing this thing and it's again being spread primarily between gay and bisexual men um even though they're not the only groups obviously that are getting it but they seem to be the groups that it's being spread the quickest in um given these statistics here in America, either way, anyway, it's believed that between 1.6 to 1.7 million Americans are in this high-risk group. Now, overall, cases we're seeing um, right now are about, total has been about 5,000, I'm sorry, more than 6,600 total uh, as of August um, 10th. Um, but last week it was believed was only 5,000. So the concern is that the, the cases are rising and that has led to what we stated in the last show: the WHO announcing the monkeypox to be considered a concerning uh, infection for the global population. Um, ultimately, of course, this has led to the uh, you know a- a approval of vaccine administ- uh, not administration, but a vaccine. Um, uh, they want to basically start creating more uh, vaccines to be distributed to different centers to give to at-risk groups. Um, and this is, of course, being doing, being conducted by the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And they're working with the president to, to make sure areas that have high risk groups that, um, you know, are with populations that have, you know, uh, concern of that may if they do get monkeypox, they could actually get ill, um, that they have access to the vaccine so they could prevent um, those things from happening. So, um, ultimately this is something that, you know, we've been watching closely. Um, in in my opinion, the, the actual risk is nowhere near the same as COVID. Um, it's nowhere near as contagious as COVID. Um, it really requires close skin to skin contact for prolonged periods to really kind of effectively transmit the disease. Now, there are some reports of it being transmitted via clothing. We'll talk about some of the things they've seen on that in another study that came up, but ultimately it's not as nowhere near as contagious as COVID, but definitely, you know, it can be spread, you know, if care isn't taken and it could cause, you know, issues that could be debilitating. Like, you know, even though it's not as deadly as COVID, some of the symptoms like this rash and the headache and the, and the other symptoms of dizziness are concerning and something you don't really want to have to deal with if you can avoid it. So I think that, uh, you know, making sure you're you're carefully examining people, especially if you plan on rubbing on somebody for an extended period of time. And you know exactly what I mean by that. If you plan on doing that with somebody, you probably want to look at them very closely, avoiding anyone who may have a rash that, you know, could be contagious. So that being said, um, you know, we're going to talk about now a very interesting study um, came across uh, my uh, desk. And I was really, really kind of amazed, honestly, because one thing that we don't really know enough about is how the brain works. And uh, brainwave activity and how it controls our overall movements, how it controls our sleep, how it controls our sanity, something that we really don't know as much as we should know, in my opinion. Now, that being said, I'm not an expert in this field, and we're probably going to look at getting a neurologist, somebody who can talk more about, especially sleep, and how it affects our overall health and wellness. That's one thing that we don't talk enough about, and I'm going to work on doing that. But uh, for now, one interesting study that came out really looks at the whole concept of sleep and what is it that makes one have the feeling of a "quote unquote" good night sleep. Um, so, you know, researchers out of the University of Copenhagen uh, recently came up with some um, a study that actually I thought was very interesting. Um, they looked at sleep patterns in mice because we all know mice and humans are exactly the same. <laughs> uh, they're not. But even research purposes, mice are used routinely because they do share some similar chemicals and biology that we can study and kind of form loose kind of correlations with human beings and how they behave and how their biology works. Now, people debate this all day whether or not you can actually do that. But we're not about to dissect human beings' heads and do, you know, (laughs) research on them like you can with rodents, so we have to work with what we got. And in the meantime, because that is probably the best available kind of comparison, are the mice, you know, looking at them and how they behave and some of the biochemistry that goes on can be helpful in better understanding human biology. So in this case, they looked at mice and they looked at the, the neurotransmitter in the brain, known as neuroadrenaline or norepinephrine. Um, it is uh, one of those. Besides not being be able, <laughs> not being able to say it, um, we will call it neuroadrenaline just for this uh, study of this uh, remainder of this podcast. It's interesting because they realize that this um, neurotransmitter actually controls sleep patterns in brains. Um, what they noted was that when you have, you have kind of spikes and trolls, meaning the level spike and, and kind of drop in a wave pattern throughout your sleep, right? And it's believed that when you have a spike of the neurotransmitter, you're somewhat stimulated and you may actually almost wake up. Um, it's believed that when you're actually sleeping, you're actually having multiple cycles of sleeping and waking throughout the evening. And during these cycles, They believe that these spikes are actually occurring when you're having a vivid or strong memory that your brain is trying to solidify. So the researchers believe that during this period of sleep, your brain is actually selecting memories that it feels that you need to remember and actually having you reimagine them in your brain during these spikes of norepinephrine. These also are the same periods when you, you feel like you're about to wake up or you're waking up actually during sleep. And then you go right back to sleep once your levels drop. So just very fascinating stuff. And it's something that, again, we're going to talk in more detail in, a, in the future as far as how sleep patterns work and why you know certain patterns of sleep are more important than others. For many years, it was believed that REM sleep, which is the deep sleep that you typically see when the levels of noradrenaline are lower, It's believed this REM sleep was actually the sleep where you consolidated memories and you had dreams. And they believe believe dreaming is important in maintaining brain health and function. But they're not really sure how and why. And so this concept of dreams helping solidify memories is a very, you know, plausible concept. It's something that is getting a lot more support given some of this new data we're seeing in this research that we're describing here, like with the mice. So, you know, these sleep boosts these boost cycles of norepinephrine that go on throughout the sleep can help, you know, they the researchers believe can help with memory solidification and allowing you to remember things better, especially if you have a good night's sleep after um, a certain activity. Now, this is one thing that always, you, you know, like just think back in your own life, if you just kind of think about it, when you do something to have a good night's sleep, typically your brain will function better the next day. And that it includes being able to recall, understand things better. This is why, you know, for years, you know, our grandparents, they all knew this. You got a big test tomorrow, make sure you sleep well, you get a good night's sleep, right? Everyone knows a good night's sleep is important in ensuring better health especially mental health the next day Um, you're gonna even if you're a fighter you're gonna fight better if you're a scientist you're gonna be able to do your science thing better if you're an athlete if you're a construction worker you're gonna feel better stronger so sleeping has been critical when it comes to maintaining brain health now this study focuses more on memory uh, solidification but ultimately you know sleeping is critical. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to get some experts in here to discuss more on the benefits of sleep, you know, what we should be doing in like anything too much sleep can be bad. But this study does highlight again, why, you know, getting a good night's sleep is is important. And now it seems that your memories are going to be, you know, critical if that doesn't happen. All right, guys, one more thing here. I want to, sorry to jump back, but we're going to talk briefly about one thing with monkeypox and the risk of transmission via clothing. Now, we said, we stated earlier that when it comes to monkeypox, the way to or the most effective way this virus is transmitted is to close skin-to-skin contact. But, of course, you know, people wear clothes, and if someone who has an infection is wearing clothes, how infectious do the clothes become? Now, you know, that being said, if someone who has monkeypox ideally is isolating themselves they're washing their own clothes, making sure they minimize contact with others... But um, a lot of times, you know, these things happen, and people just do what they want anyway, despite the isolation (laughs) concerns. And since you're not throwing people in jail, especially not here in America, people are going to be out here with monkeypox, and it's going to be out here. So just get ready to deal with it. Now, as someone who has monkeypox who wants to do the right thing, which we hope most people will be doing, what do you do with your clothes, right? Well, there's concern that because the clothes could potentially transmit the virus, you know, what do you do to actually reduce um, transmission of the virus via the clothing? Um, now, of course, the best thing you could do, and this is what many experts who, who, who deal with uh, infectious diseases and other researchers feel, is that if you have dirty clothes, especially someone who had monkeypox wore them, you want to make sure hot soap and water is used because that's going to be the most effective way for killing the virus. Um, you know, um, you want also, if you're handling someone or if you dealt with someone who had monkeypox, wash your hands thoroughly, hot soap and water, it's going to be the best way to kill any monkeypox or any virus that you may come in contact with. Um... Now, um, it's believed that uh, one virus can be on the clothing for up to 14 days. So, you know, it's definitely, um, you know, a possibility. Now, it's really hard, despite uh, the the way monkeypox can persist on clothing um, to transmit to another person via the clothing. All right. So another story that caught my eye was uh, really a a new kind of um, drug has hit the streets and it's causing a lot of chaos. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the recent uh, rash of increasing drug overdoses we're seeing. And many people have died of a result. Um, drug overdose is actually one of the leading causes of death in America currently. Um, and it's believed that um, people's addictions to opiates have led to this. Now, of course, on the medical side, this has really led to a severe reduction in prescriptions of opiates being given out by physicians. Um, there's been increased monitoring programs to make sure that physicians are, you know, not doing the most in overprescribing very strong pain medications because of the concern of addiction and other issues. That being said, there's an entire illegal market where um, opiates and other illicit drugs are sold. And these are typically made by underground manufacturers, people who usually are not trained in (laughs) chemistry and uh, safety is not really a concern. Um, That being said, it's very common for these street manufacturers to grab medications and other chemicals that may not be safe for human consumption, but may give a similar effect to fool the user. And typically the users are people who buy illegal drugs off the streets, aren't really as concerned about the FDA regulations, or just may not give a damn because they're high and they wanna get higher. So it's, it's unfortunate. Many people unfortunately have bought tainted medications and has died as a result and uh, because of this, researchers typically t- like to get these medications when they're discovered and test them and see what's in them and kind of figure out what are these street pharmacists or street manufacturers putting in these medications uh, because it ultimately it becomes a situation of treatment. Um, and one medication that was discovered is actually an animal tranquilizer known as Xylazine. Now, Xylazine is something that um, is not approved for humans very dangerous. However, um, street pharmacists have been using this and mixing it with fentanyl. And when they sell it, they sell it as fentanyl, but it actually has some harmful chemicals like xylazine. Now, the reason why this is important, because when someone overdoses on fentanyl, which happens is a lot, it's a huge difference if it's an official fentanyl purchased from a, or a pharmacy, or if it was a street vendor's variation of fentanyl, which could have anything in it, including xylazine, or other very harmful chemicals. Well, um, the concern was that because there was some data that was, there was some research that was done on these chemicals, on these pills that were seized from those who had had it or overdose victims. And it found that up to 7% of the quote unquote fentanyl that was picked up actually, sorry, not 7%, I'm wrong, 28%. This actually was done in the Philadelphia and Puerto Rico areas. sorry, let me actually correct that. Uh, Xylazine was actually very big in Philly and Puerto Rico initially. Um, They said it was found actually 91% of opioid samples, right? So really horrific. So um, now more recent samples in the Massachusetts data shows that it was in about 28% of drug samples there. So, you know, Xylazine is definitely doing its thing on the underground circuit If you're buying illicit drugs, especially fentanyl or other opioids, thinking you're doing something, you're actually doing a very severe disservice. And so much so that you may not even be able to be saved if you do overdose. Um, Xylazine is actually not an opioid. So typical treatment for opioids will not actually work if you have been a victim of a xylazine overdose. This is something why... Researchers are getting very scared, or, or clinicians are getting scared. Including myself, who's an emergency physician. If someone comes in with reports of a quote-unquote fentanyl overdose, and then they present, and then you're treating them for fentanyl, when in fact there's other unknown chemicals in this quote-unquote fentanyl they purchase, you can actually put yourself in a very, very dangerous situation that medical professionals may not be able to help you help you um, survive. It actually reminds me of a case that I saw uh, almost a year ago, and it was a young child. Um, I won't say he was a young child. He was actually about 16, an uh, aspiring rapper in his local area. He actually had fans. It seemed like he had some music he put out that people were interested in. And um, unfortunately, he decided to go ahead and try his luck selling illicit prescription drugs. Um, the reason we know this is because you check his Instagram right when before I saw him in the emergency room. Um, He was posting about how he had a mixtape coming out and he was excited and he had his fans engaging. And and the dude was, uh, you know, somewhat talented. I'm not going to say I was the biggest fan of his music, but he definitely had fans who listened to it. And, you know, that's still saying a lot if you're an artist. Now, after, um, unfortunately, on this fateful day, he actually decided to purchase some prescriptions, uh, pills. And the only reason we know that he was intending to sell them because he actually advertised them on his uh, social media now, after doing this um unfortunately he took the medication i guess he wanted to test out and he took apparently two tablets and then he apparently went unconscious um unfortunately um cpr was applied at the scene and was not effective he was later transported to the emergency room where um unfortunately he didn't he succumb to his injuries but it was an interesting well it was an unfortunate case overall and a, a life was lost due to illicit prescription medications but You know, one thing that was noted is that, you know, when people buy prescriptions, you know, he claimed only to have taken one or two, apparently, as family members were told that he was talking with before he passed. And clearly, you know, he was someone that was familiar with what he thought he was purchasing was, in this case, Percocets. Uh, Percocets is essentially um, a Percodan, which is a opiate, and combined with Tylenol, that's the official medication that's sold in pharmacies. However, people who have... You know who buy them from illicit pharmacies you never really know what you're getting in this case this gentleman purchased something that he thought was one thing ended up being something else that had some what I suspect could be more harmful chemicals like this xylazine and other chemicals that we're seeing pop up in these illicit drug medications so this just goes to show how important it is to avoid you know illicit drug use period I mean this is even if you're someone who's extremely addicted to opiates you can actually get opiate like medications legally um, now if you're just someone who just wants to use them and flip them and sell them, you know, that's your, that's your, um, uh, choice. And unfortunately, um, I think uh, it's a very dangerous one and you should probably reconsider. Ultimately though, um, medications can be helpful if used in a safe way. And unfortunately, opiates are just so strong, people can abuse them if they're not using them appropriately. So you're going to be careful guys. Um, safe out there guys. If you need help with drug addiction, please, uh, contact, um, uh, there's many local re- facilities that are free, especially if you're nice as America, to help you uh, wean off addictive drugs. So, um, yes, moving on. All right, guys, moving on to the next uh, topic, and that is another study that confirms what we knew. But I'd like to reiterate it just for that effectiveness, just to make sure the point is driven home. And that is cardio respiratory fitness is the strongest predictor of all cause mortality than any other thing across all ages, right? So um, it is it is it is very effective for reducing death, right? So if you're someone who wants to live long, now that you can guarantee that, but one of the best ways to ensure that happens is to maintain good cardio respiratory fitness. So that means good cardiovascular health. Maintain a decent level of fitness. Um, That is the best way to ensure your lowest risk of death from all causes, right? From cancer, from diabetes, from stroke, all that, heart attacks, boom, everything. Reduce that risk by staying physically fit. Now, how do we know this? Well, another fantastic study has come out underscoring this fact, right? This actually study was done looking at veterans. So over a course of 15 years, Group A group of people out of Rutgers actually looked at data from the VA Medical Center, and it looked at people over a 15-year lifespan across all ages, specifically just 30 to 95 years, and they underwent exercise treadmill tests between the years 1999 and 2020. So, People who exercise treadmill tests, we do that for physical fitness in general when it comes to healthcare care and looking at people's physical fitness. Exercise treadmill tests are very effective. These are also done to look at heart health as well as part of a cardiac screening protocol that is done. Something you can discuss with your primary care doctor if you are someone who feels who needs cardiac screening. But either way, they looked at um, data from exercise treadmill tests between this 15-year span. Extra 21-year span, excuse me. And they found out that they, after looking at the data from 750,000 individuals, so just extremely powerful study. You know, almost a million people in this data pool they can look at and look at how the numbers played out. This Usually when you have big numbers like this, the results can be extremely powerful because the data now is backed by a lot of, you know, large volume which can help make the numbers more accurate when applying them to different populations. And so it showed that, again, exercise and maintaining good fitness was critical in keeping you alive longer. Now, this group uh, of data was looked at across all kinds of spectrums. Let's break through the demographics briefly. 6.5% were women. 73.7% were white individuals. 19% were African-American individuals. 4.7% 4.7% were Hispanic individuals and 2.1% were Native Americans. So um, obviously um, this study is going to be probably more appropriate for white individuals just because they made the majority of the data pool. Blacks, again, you know, also were higher represented than they are in the population. So still I think very effective for the African-American individuals. Now Hispanics were, I think, a bit underrepresented, only 4.7%. So this could not, this data may not be as effective when looking at Hispanic individuals and Same for Native Americans. So, um, ultimately, um, this data is very strong, in my opinion. Uh, But, again, some groups are underrepresented, which can lower the accuracy in those groups. But, overall, it showed that um, looking at people for a group of 10 years, right, Um, they looked at people over a 10-year period and looked at those who still alive and what kind of caused them to, to die, and uh, they looked at people who exercised a lot and who had good you know cardiovascular fitness Um, they noted that they noted that those who had um, very high scores as far as cardiovascular fitness um, they had a significantly lower risk of mortality um, than those who had you know considered unfit so for instance um You know, people who had considered high, elevated levels of exercise capacity, um, they noted that um, they had, again, much longer lifespans with a lot less chronic illness. Um, Also, the mortality risk of those who were considered least fit, meaning bottom 20% in those exercise treadmill test performance numbers. So if you're in bottom 20%, you're probably, you know, not very fit and don't really have the physical fitness required um, to uh, maintain your heart level at those levels needed to get higher scores on the exercise treadmill test. So they found that those who were considered the least fit, they had a fourfold risk of death compared to the extremely fit individuals um, when looking at the data. So um, just very clear um, example that people who had better cardiovascular fitness had far longer lifespans with less chronic illness. So I'm just another study confirming this that, um, you know, I think that we've all you known due to the previous data we've read and discussed on the show. But it just goes to show that, you know, you really, you know, are doing yourself uh, one of the best things you can do for yourself by maintaining good cardiovascular fitness. That means being active, working out at least three times a week, at least 30 to 45 minutes. Um, you know, I think the official numbers... They're there, But I have, you know, I, I recommend, again, a little bit more aggressive than the fish number just because um, we know that, you know, after a certain threshold, typically at least 90 to 120 minutes a week, you start to have, you know, those medical improvements. But we want to do better than that and keep our metabolism up. And that's something we know will happen if we are of a better cardiovascular v- fitness level. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, again, another reason to stay fit. All right. All right, guys, our last story today was going to be talking about an interesting study that came out looking at intermittent fasting and maybe it potentially being a benefit in treating patients with COVID-19. Now, intermittent fasting is something we always discuss and we've talked about many times on this show. Um, Intermittent fasting is essentially the concept of fasting for extended periods to help um, the body kind of um, reset, if you will. Um, Intermittent fasting is typically... Designed as fasting for about 12 to 24 hours or skipping up to two meals in a row. And this uh, allows the body to um, kind of use some of the internal glucose stores. And uh, ultimately, if you do a lot of fasting, you can actually go into ketosis, which is a condition where your body starts to break down fat for energy as opposed to using glucose. Um, now, of course, ketosis is something that's behind the concept of um, um, the uh the keto movement, where people are trying to not eat carbs and focus on proteins and fats. And people have lost weight with that movement. Now, there are some detractors, including those who um, are not appreciative of the bad breath, typically those who are in ketosis. But ultimately, it's uh, something that many people do practice and uh, may have some benefit. Now, I'm a fan of intermittent fasting, not necessarily the entire uh, keto movement, but intermittent fasting can be effective in helping you lose weight as well as you know helping your body Reduces sensitivity to insulin and other things, or sorry, um, increase sensitivity to insulin because you want to make insulin um, more effective when it's there. And that's something that's very important for good health. So, um, intermittent fasting is something that has been shown to be beneficial for health and maybe something you want to look into if you're interested. You can check our show. In the past, we have some old shows done on, done on it. If you're on the Anchor website, you can check those old shows. Also, we'll have some future topics i mean shows on this topic as well but anyways in this study they looked at intermittent fasting and patients who practiced it regularly now this study was interesting because they actually conducted it in the state of utah and those who are not from america utah is one of the states that are heavily um, populated with people who practice the mormon faith uh, also known as the church of jesus christ latter-day saints many people do practice that in the state of utah and what's unique about it or not necessarily unique about it a lot of religions practice the concept of fasting, uh, but I guess for these researchers, they found that this group of people um, had a kind of a good mix of people who practiced fasting, and they also also had a lot of COVID there as well. So they're looking at those who were treated for COVID, who also were part of this church, because they can look at them versus those who weren't, and look at those who fasted a lot versus those who didn't, and look at those health outcomes, right? So ultimately, they looked at these groups of of, of populations. And they found that those who actually, first off, the numbers, i always got to mention the numbers. study took place, had about 1,524 adults. So, again, not the strongest of studies. Again, they're looking at a small community of Mormons and non-Mormons in Utah, uh, which is not the most populated state. But they looked at about 1,500 people, right? And they looked at <clears throat> 205 people who did test positive for COVID. So, again, even smaller, really, um, the people who actually had COVID in this group was 200 people. So, you can't really say, okay, someone in Utah got it. and This is what happened. To compare that to someone in, you know, Botswana or someone in, you know, or Maine. I mean, it may not be a direct comparison. However, there's some information we can deduct from this and kind of look at it. And in this case, this group looked at intermittent fasting. And what they noticed in this group was that those who had regularly practiced intermittent fasting actually had the lowest risk of being transported from outpatient COVID, which is considered a mild version of COVID, to an inpatient or in such, in other words, they had a lower risk of being hospitalized with COVID. Um, You know, COVID is one of those conditions that, you know, supportive therapy, meaning treating your symptoms is critical. So if you do get COVID and you start to have very... Um, low oxygen levels or you start to get dangerously sick, those is typically when it's time to get admitted. <clears throat> so obviously those who get it um, tend to um, be at a higher risk of death from COVID and you don't want to be in a hospital if you can avoid it. Um, however, it's critical if you are sick because you will you know, have a serious outcome if you don't. So something that people are monitoring closely if you do have COVID, and in this situation, people who practice intermittent fasting had a less... Um, of a progression to that dangerous form where they had to be in the hospital. So it showed that, you know, they were able to tolerate the illness well. And there's some theories now being determined why this may be happening. Uh, <clears throat> it's believed that those who are fasting a lot may have um, less, you know, you know, they are actually um, have some processes that are going on that are tend to be, you know, advantageous for the body to help clear the, itself of the infected virus, affect the cells with the virus. Um, it be- it's believed that intermittent fasting actually causes the body to practice autophagy, which is where it activates the process of destroying old cells, infected cells, and kind of making sure it's clean this, the body of all the the waste. So, you know, intermittent fasting is good for that. It helps reset the body and get it kind of in its top shape to make sure it's able to max you know maximize the proteins and nutrients at it's disposable. You know, when you're just dumping all kinds of crud in your body every 15 minutes. Your body gets tired of it and just kind of shuts down and ultimately just kind of starts storing everything. This is kind of how people tend to get overweight when they have a low metabolism, but they're eating and consuming a lot. The body just goes into severe storage mode because it wants to make sure that all those excess calories are being put away. Um, Now, uh, when you're fasting, though, your body is kind of being very aggressive with the nutrients it does have. It's starting to break down some of the storage to get, you know, more energy into the body so that it can do its thing and run the typical functions of the body. So um, intermittent fasting, it's believed that if those who have it or practice it during a COVID crisis, they may actually be in a better position to clear the virus quicker due to improved um, immune systems that are activated during a fasting period. So just interesting stuff here. Um, again, a very tiny study. So not you know the most powerful of data but it's kind of interesting nonetheless so want to talk about it on the show so that's all for today guys um, really thank you for checking out the show um again had a brief hiatus due to some uh, vacation moves but we are back in a, at it um stay tuned for more exciting details from the health and wells connection any questions or concerns guys please reach out very excited to discuss and chat with all those who are enjoying what we're doing again
0: this is dr barry Thank you for listening to the health and wellness connection podcast and radio show. For more information on ways to get healthy, please check us out. www.anchor.fm forward slash HW connection. Here you can re-listen to the show, check out older shows and even further support the show by becoming a subscriber to the podcast. Please check us out today. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash HW connection. And also don't forget to follow Dr. Barry on Instagram at, D.R. Berry MD. Until next time, stay healthy.